brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. The only tracks by which today our soldiers of France can move about with some measure of safety. They are little hollow tracks, some undulating, some straight, communication trenches which the French nickname intestines. These have been multiplied again and again until the ground is furrowed with them unendingly. What prodigious work, moreover, they represent, these mole-like paths spreading like a network over hundreds of leagues if to their sum be added trenches, shelter-caves, and all those catacombs that penetrate right into the heart of the hills, the mind is amazed at excavations so extensive, which would seem the work of centuries. And these strange kinds of nets, stretched out in all directions, would anyone, unless previously warned and accustomed to them, understand what they were? They look as if gigantic spiders had woven their webs, around countless numbers of posts, which stretch out beyond range of sight, some in straight lines, some in circles or crescents, tracing on that wide tract of country designs in which there must surely be some cabalistic significance intended to envelop and entangle the barbarians more effectively. Since I last came this way, these obstructing nets must have been reinforced to a terrible extent, and their number has been multiplied by two by ten. In order to achieve such inextricable confusion, our soldiers, those weavers of snares, must have made in them turnings and twists with their great bobbins of barbed wire carried under their arms. But here, at various points, are enclosures, whose purpose is obvious at a glance, and which add to the grisly horror of the whole scene. These fences of wood surround closely packed groups of humble little wooden crosses, made of two sticks. Alas, what they are is clear at first sight. Thus, then, they lie, within sound of the cannonade, as if the battle were not yet over for them, these dear comrades of ours who have vanished, heroes, humble yet sublime, inapproachable for the present, even for those who weep for them inapproachable, because death never ceases to fly through the air which stirs overhead, above their little silent gatherings.
Ah, to complete the impression of unreality, a black bird appears of fabulous size, a monster of the apocalypse, flying with great clamour aloft in the air. He is moving in the direction of France, seeking, no doubt, some more sheltered region, where at last women and children are to be found, in the hope of destroying some of them. I keep on walking, if walking it can be called, this wearisome, pitiless repetition of plunges into snow and ice-cold mud. At last I reach the clump of trees where we have arranged to meet. I am thankful to have arrived there, for my helmet and cap were encumbrances under that unexpectedly hot sun. I am, however, before my time, the officer whom I invited to meet me here, in order to discuss questions concerning new works of defence, new networks of lines, new pits. That is he, no doubt, that blue silhouette coming this way across the snow-shrouded ground. But he is far away, and for a few more moments I can still indulge in the reverie with which I whiled away the journey, before the time comes when I must once more become precise and business-like. Evidently the place is not one of perfect peace, for it is clear that these melancholy boughs, half stripped of leaves already, have suffered from those great humming cockchafers that fly across from time to time, and have been shot through as if they were no stronger than sheets of paper. It is, to be sure, but a small wood, yet it keeps me company, wrapping me round with an illusion of safety. I am standing here on rising ground, where the wind blows more icily, and I command a view of the whole terrible landscape, a succession of monotonous hills, striped in zebra fashion with whitish trenches. Its few trees have been blasted by shrapnel. In the distance, that network of iron wire, stretching out in all directions, shines brightly in the sun, and is not unlike the gossamer which floats over the meadows in springtime. And on all sides the detonation of artillery continues with its customary clamour, unceasing here, day and night, like the sea beating against the cliffs. Ah, the big black bird has found someone to talk to in the air. I see it suddenly assailed by a quantity of those flakes of white cotton wool, bursts of shrapnel, in appearance so innocent, yet so dangerous to birds of his feather. So he hurriedly turns back, and his crimes are postponed to another day. From behind a neighbouring hill issues a squad of men in blue, who will reach me before the officer on the road yonder. It is one, just one, of a thousand of those little processions which, alas, may be met with every hour all along the front, forming, as it were, part of the scenery. In front march four soldiers carrying a stretcher, and others follow them to relieve them. They, too, are attracted by the delusive hope of protection afforded by the branches, and at the beginning of the wood they stop instinctively for a breathing space and to change shoulders. They have come from first-line trenches a mile or two away, and are carrying a seriously wounded man to a subterranean field hospital, not more than a quarter of an hour's walk away. They, likewise, had not anticipated the heat of that terrible March sun, which is beating down on their heads. They are wearing their helmets and winter caps, and these weigh upon them as heavily as the precious burden which they are so careful not to jolt. In addition to this, they drag along on each leg a thick crust of snow and sticky mud, which makes their feet as heavy as elephants' feet, and the sweat pours in great drops down their faces, cheerful in spite of fatigue. 
Where is your man wounded, I ask, in a low voice? In a voice still lower comes the reply. His stomach is ripped open, and the major in the trench said that... They finished the sentence merely by shaking their heads, but I have understood. Besides, he has not stirred. His poor hand remains lying across his eyes and forehead, doubtless to protect them from the burning sun, and I ask them, Why have you not covered his face? We put a handkerchief over it, sir, but he took it off. He said he preferred to remain like this, so that he could still look at things between his fingers. Ah, the last two men have blood as well as sweat pouring over their faces and trickling in a little stream down their necks. It is nothing much, sir, they say. We got that as soon as we started. We began by carrying him along the communication trenches, but that jolted him too much, so then we walked along outside in the open. Poor fellows, admirable for their very carelessness. To save their wounded man from jolts, they risked their own lives. Two or three of these death-bringing cockchafers, which go humming along here at all hours, came down and were crushed to pieces on the stones close to them, and wounded them with their shattered fragments. The Germans disdained to fire at a single wayfarer like myself, but a group of men, and a stretcher in particular, they cannot resist. One of these men, both of whom are dripping with blood, has perhaps actually received only a scratch, but the other has lost an ear. Only a shred is left, hanging by a thread. "'You must go at once and have your wound dressed at the hospital, my friend,' I say to him. "'Yes, sir, and we are just on our way there, to the hospital.' It is very lucky. This is the only idea of complaint that has entered his head. It is very lucky. And he says this with such a quiet, pleasant smile, grateful to me for taking an interest in him. I hesitated before going to look more closely at their seriously wounded man, who never stirred, for I feared lest I should disturb his last dream. Nevertheless, I approach him very gently, because they are just going to carry him away. Alas, he is almost a child, a child from some village. So much is clear from his bronzed cheeks, which have scarcely yet begun to turn pale. The sun, even as he desired, shines full upon his comely face, the face of a boy of twenty, with a frank and energetic expression, and his hand still shades his eyes, which have a fixed look, and seem to have done with sight. Some morphia had to be given him, to spare him at least unnecessary suffering. Lowly child of our peasantry, little ephemeral being, of what is he dreaming, if indeed he still dreams? Perhaps of a white-capped mother, who wept tender tears whenever she recognized his childish writing on an envelope from the front. Or perhaps he is dreaming of a cottage garden, the delight of his earliest years, where, he reflects, this warm March sun will call to life new shoots all along some old wall. On his chest I see the handkerchief with which one of the men had attempted to cover his face. It is a fine handkerchief, embroidered with a marquis's coronet, the coronet of one of his stretcher-bearers. He has desired still to look at things, in his terror, doubtless, of the black night. But soon he will suddenly cease to be aware of this same sun, which now must dazzle him. First of all, he will enter the half-darkness of the field-hospital, and immediately afterwards there will descend upon him that black, inexorable night in which no March sun will ever rise again.
Go on at once, my friends, I say to them. The wind blows too cold here for people drenched with sweat like you. I watch them move away, their legs weighted with slabs of viscous mud. My admiration and my compassion go with them on their way through the snow, where they plod along so laboriously. These men, to be sure, still have some privileges, for they can at least help one another, and careful hands are waiting to dress their wounds in an underground refuge, which is almost safe. But close to this, at Verdun, there are thousands of others, who have fallen in confused heaps, smothering one another. Underneath corpses lie dying men, whom it is impossible to rescue from those vast charnel-houses. So long ago, and so scientifically prepared by the Kaiser for the greater glory of that ferocious young nonentity whom he has for a son. End of chapter 23